celebrating classics and creating new ones only on the Music Vibes Podcast. Now, here's your host, DC Hendrix. And I am your host, DC Hendrix. Welcome into the Music Vibes Podcast. Appreciate you being with us. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. Make us one of your favorites. Today, we celebrate 40 years of music memories. On August 1st, 1981, People across the nation here in the United States were tuned in for the very first time to watch music television. Well, it's 40 years later, and you still want your MTV. Now, as an African-American man, things did not start off well for us. Black people in the early days of MTV, but they quickly changed thanks to people like Whitney Houston, Prince, and Michael Jackson. As they refused to play black artists early on, which is, you know, that originally wasn't their, you know, target audience. That's not who they were trying to reach. Things did not start off great for African-American artists. But as you see today, things have completely changed as we're here in 2021, 40 years later. And we're going to be here to go through the years through it all. I'm going to be joined by Robert Drake. He's a DJ based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he's been a music DJ and in the industry for 40 plus years. And of course, he was in the clubs. He was watching MTV back in the day. So he's going to be our expert today on MTV as we celebrate 40 years. Now, if you think of MTV and you think of the 80s, right? You think of that 80s rock. You think of that 80s pop music. You think of 80s fashion. MTV helped capture it all. And the reason I wanted to celebrate it here today is because MTV, believe it or not, helped change the entertainment industry forever. As you see today, MTV now has television shows. They still play music videos. It is now bigger and better than ever. And the reason MTV changed entertainment and the music industry forever is because record companies are providing free content that is played basically nonstop. So on a 24 hour loop, you get free content on MTV. Now, as a kid, you know, parents look at this channel and if they catch you watching it, you're probably going to get in some trouble. But now things have changed. And now pop music and hip hop culture pretty much runs the MTV channel. When you think of the early MTV days, you probably think of Madonna. You probably think of Tina Turner. You think of Prince. You think of Duran Duran. And you also think of Michael Jackson. Now, a lot of you that watch modern day reality television, well, guess who pretty much perfected that first? That's MTV. I know you watch The Real World, The Osbournes, Jersey Shore. That's MTV, man. Now, as MTV is now changing, as it's now known as MTV Entertainment, it still resonates forever with me today. As I look back, I even loved watching TV shows like Beavis and Butthead. MTV just helps bring entertainment to life, and it still does today. 
So joining us here on the Music Vibes podcast, brought to you by Orbit Music here in Mishawaka, Indiana. Of course, we always appreciate them for being a fantastic sponsor of this podcast. We are joined by Robert Drake, of course, a fantastic DJ. He hosts a nice show called Rock of the 80s program that I'm a big fan of. We are blessed to be joined by Robert Drake today to talk a little MTV and more. Robert, thank you so much for joining today. It is a pleasure to be here with you. And of course, always an opportunity to talk about the 80s. I look forward to that's right. Always love the 80s as I've been on that kick all throughout the last week as I found out that last Sunday was the anniversary, 40 years since MTV. And obviously throughout these years, things have changed so much. But before we even get into that, I want to know a little bit more about you. So kind of give us a little introduction on exactly who Robert Drake is. Born and raised in Philadelphia. I started uh, working in the industry probably in the early 1980s. Um, mostly in media, and then worked into radio back in 1988, was at Club DJ from 82. In fact, uh, this coming year is my 40th anniversary spinning club music in the in the city of Philadelphia, New York. Nice. And grew up on the 80s, you know, born and raised in, in the 60s, but definitely grew up in the 80s and came to my own. So I've always had a fond spot for the music of the 80s, not just uh, the rock of the 80s, but also the R&B sounds and the electro sounds, all the different music that came out during that decade. So when 40th anniversary of MTV hit, it was obvious that WXPN, which is a station I work at here mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, which is a public radio station, we thought, you know what, let's celebrate that 40th anniversary by doing a whole bunch of retro programming to celebrate the music from back in the day. And it all came to a head this past week when I took over the radio for 24 live hours and was on the air mm-hmm. nonstop playing all the music I wanted to. It was whatever I wanted to play for 24 hours. So uh, it was, for me, that was a dream come true to play the music I love for a whole day. Yeah, and uh, you know, as a DJ myself here on a R&B urban AC radio station, obviously, um, you know, the '80s continues to be that had that nostalgic factor uh, throughout all these decades. But uh, kind of traveling back to the '80s, and you do have that monthly Rock of the '80s program that you have. Um, you know, how do you approach that? You know, for the listeners. Well, I think the cool thing about the Rock of the '80s is I always tell people it's more of a genre and less of a calendar. So. Some of the rock of the 80s fall into the late 70s, and some can even um, get into the early 90s, but it's more of a vibe. And for me, I've always found that the music of the 80s has been so influential to today's artists, not just rock and roll, because as we both know, uh, the rock category of music is definitely not the predominant category anymore like it once was back in the 70s. And so today, of course, hip-hop is strong, mm-hmm. uh, R&B is strong, country is strong, and all those genres of music, if you listen to the hits that are coming out today, so much of it is based upon the music that was established in the 80s. And I think um, for many people, the 80s were sort of the joke of music back in the day. You just laugh mm-hmm. about the 80s being sort of, you know, schlocky sounds. But now people are realizing how influential that music was to the artists of today. Yeah, that's something that, you know, growing up in the night as a 90s baby, you know, growing up in that era, that was the joke. Everyone, you know, tried to say that the 80s, you know, the era of music in the 80s was the worst. And, you know, now that I'm older and able to kind of reflect on things, and as I've got to listen to so many so many different genres and different music throughout the years. Traveling back to the 60s, I really don't travel too back before that because some of that's just a little bit too old for me. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, going through the decades, I honestly, and as I, this is weird for me saying from a R&B radio standpoint, I do love 90s R&B and hip hop, but I would say the 90s would be the worst era and worst decade of music now that I'm older. Would you agree with that? 
Well, what's really funny about that is that I think that almost every decade of music has been sort of plagiarized by being the worst decade of music at one point <laughs> or another. I remember in the 80s and early 90s, everybody was making fun of the music of the 70s. You know, that was like the thing to do. So I think that every decade goes through that growth period where everybody hates it and everybody loves to hate it. And then finally dust settles a little bit and you realize, wait, actually that was influential. I mean, the, you know, the seventies naturally <laughs> were very influential to R and B. You can't get, you can't cut the two. When you think of the sound of Philadelphia and you think of, uh, you know, the growth of the late R and B and disco movement, those things really influenced how R and B was shaped in the eighties and nineties. So I think every decade has its moment. I think right now, when you look at the music of the nineties, you definitely think of it as, you could easily think of it as somewhat empty and vapid. But then again, that's what a lot of people thought about the 80s. And again, that's what a lot of people thought about disco. So every every genre of music has its moment. For me, though, I think that um, I think what's really telling for me is that I can play an 80s song to a young ear who has no idea who that artist is, and they will think it's a new song. And that mm. says something. You know, I think that you can kind of feel that 70s music and 90s music sometimes is dated, but there's so much in the 80s sound that you can play to this day, and it all it does is bring joy to people's ears, and they appreciate it, and many who don't know who it is might find it amusing because they don't realize that it's 40 years old. That's a really good point. That is a really good point. I think everyone would be able to, you know, and I, I think that is how it is. You know, every every yeah. decade has had its own moment in time where they're like, oh, yeah, that was definitely the worst decade. Like 90s, a lot of people will say, oh, that was the pop era, the terrible pop era with the Spice Girls and uh, boy bands. And then 80s, you obviously have that same discussion, 70s disco. That's a really good point. And I think, too, when you look at the 90s as an example for R&B, you know, you, you think about the fact that, you know, the early part of the 90s started off with harmonies with Boys to Men, of course, leading yep. the pack with a whole bunch of other bands. Uh, but, of course, at the same time, you had a whole resurgence of rap music that developed in the 90s that really laid the groundwork for what we're experiencing today. Absolutely. And of course, I wanted to highlight this as well as I always love highlighting when, you know, in, in, in the entertainment business, it's really hard to be recognized and honored with awards. And it's something that we don't necessarily work for, but it is always appreciated, I guess, coming from a you know, a guy in the entertainment business myself. But you have been blessed to win a couple of broadcasting awards. Go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, um, I picked up the uh, George Foster Peabody Award, which is sort of considered to be like an Oscar of radio broadcast or media broadcasting. Wow. Got that uh, back in the 80s and then uh, also picked up an Edward Armstrong Award for creative use in radio. So over the years, we've, I've been acknowledged for the use. And one of the reasons I have is that one of the programs I really have been involved with since day one here at WXPN is actually a show called Kids Corner, which is a daily live call-in radio show for kids between the ages of like 6 and 13, where we have conversations about topics of the day and interaction and things like that. And when we started that show in 1988, we didn't, ex it was pretty obvious that, you know, obviously kids were comfortable using the phone, but then as technology grew and kids became way more visual and way more connected to their computers, and then of course, more recently connected to their smartphones, the fear was that we would lose that generation who would not be interested in being on the radio or being talking on the phone. And if anything, it's just blossomed to a whole different level now. I mean, we're into our fourth generation of listeners who really look forward to the opportunity to hear their voices. And I think, just like you know from being in radio, it all comes down to being able to give people a voice. And if you're mm -hmm. able to give people a voice, um, they appreciate that no matter how old they are. So that's kind of been, that. that's my bread and butter here at WXPN is producing that daily show. 
but then also doing a lot of the music shows as well. So that's where a lot of the awards, the awards recognition comes from. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. Very commendable. Uh, that's that's something that we're trying to accomplish at Mix 106 as well, just trying to be you know, within the community a little bit more, including them. And obviously the power of radio goes a long way, and you guys do a great job of that. That's why I want to definitely – that's why I wanted to highlight that. So as we travel back, you know, 1981, uh, last last Sunday was the anniversary, and we travel back to 1981, unfortunately nine years before I was born on this <laughs> earth. So I can't, I can't physically put myself there. I can mentally and pretend I was there musically, but I was not there in person. So f- for coming from you, you know, the first time you got to check out this MTV channel. Well, obviously, the first time I got to check it out, as most people did in most markets, it didn't. It wasn't available in 1981 for most places. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the guests I had on my 24-hour show was Mark Goodman, who was one of the first VJs on MTV, and he spent a lot of time with me talking about those early years and how uh, in Man- in Manhattan, where it was being broadcast, it wasn't even able to be seen because none of the cable companies had it there. So. It took a while for it to take off, but the places that it was being carried by a cable carrier, those markets, all of a sudden, there, there was a groundswell of interest for the artists that were being played on MTV. People wanted to buy that record, and I think that's when people put the dots together and realized, wait, this is an opportunity for us to not only showcase music, but to sell records. And you know, when it all comes down to it, that's really what it was driving, was the, a record sales is what drove that whole industry. So I think for um, for me, though, I, my first true recollection of MTV and the importance of MTV was watching um, Live Aid in 1985. Obviously, mm. uh, here in Philadelphia, we were one of the two places that were hosting Live Aid, both uh, in England and, of course, here in Philly. Mm-hmm. So our, all of our local news channels were covering it 24-7, but there was something to be said about watching this national network, MTV, broadcasting live from our hometown. So for me, that was kind of a monumental moment for me to really appreciate the value of MTV. And I also think for me too, one of the coolest things was when MTV finally broke down the color barrier that it had initially mm-hmm. established. When it first launched, it was it was decidedly a very white rock format. Mm-hmm. Um, they That's who they were targeting. They knew most of the people who were going to be carrying this channel in middle America and small little communities. So they thought, all right, we're going to go for that marketplace. So that's that was their target market. Nothing wrong with that. That's business. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. But then as the network grew and it started to become carried by more larger cable companies, a lot of people started to say, you know what, there's not an African-American appearance here. There's really not really many artists. And you know, it took Michael Jackson to break down that door mm-hmm. and showcase not only that you can play black artists on this network and it would be appreciated but more importantly you could play black artists and they would be just as creative as a white artist when it comes to creating great video and creating great content and of course michael was second to none when it came to creating great content especially with his thriller masterpiece which was like a 20-minute video that he created with quincy jones and others and i think that that uh was the turning point for mtv and i think between that and the fact that when when mtv was approached by various people to do something on hip-hop and rap uh, in the early 1980s, they initially said, okay, we'll do something on a Saturday afternoon, and we'll do it like once a month. And then the response to this weird little niche program was so successful 
that they quickly made it every week on a Saturday. And then, of course, that began EOMTV Raps, which laid the groundwork for a whole you know, community of hip-hop and rap artists to be discovered and uh, celebrated. So there's a lot of steps in this network when you watch it throughout the 80s where it really took off, just like there were in the industry as well. Uh, one of the guests I had on my 24-hour show this past week was Monica Lynch. And Monica Lynch uh, started off as a secretary administrative person who was the first employee hmm. of uh, this new label Tommy Boy back in 1981. And she moved her way up through that, you know, movement in the early 1980s, signing Africa Bombada with Planet Rock and all that, and then finally found herself as president of uh, Tommy Boy Records by 1985. And what was interesting in the conversation that we had was her discovery of Queen Latifah and her discovery of De La Soul and her discovery of Naughty by Nature and all these artists who were not finding a place to be heard. So she signed them to Tommy Boy Records mm -hmm. and gave birth to a whole new movement in R&B and rap, which I thought was really impressive. And at the same time, never forgot her roots, that electro roots that Africa Bombada had, where she also signed these two white boys from Minneapolis who were <laughs> information society who wound up doing, you know, telling you what, what's on my mind and all this pure energy music. So she kept the electro music. She focused on the... Um, the hip house sounds from Queen Latifah, and then she also focused on the new wave of rap music that was developing and convinced MTV to support all of that. So I think MTV grew because the music grew, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things I like most about the network back in the day. Absolutely, and I'm really glad you touched on, you know, things starting off for, you know, African-Americans in the music industry, not so nice from MTV, as, as you said, and you nailed it. Mm -hmm. I talked about this earlier, too, until... It was until Billie Jean, you know, hit number one on the charts until they started playing black artists and guys, you know, that I listened to like Rick James uh, were very were very vocal about, you know, MTV not playing, uh, you know, black artists. I think David Bowie was pretty vocal about it as well. Yeah, ironically, David Bowie was very vocal in an interview he did with Mark Goodman, the guest I had. And so and Mark mm -hmm. and I talked about that. And that was really a turning point because. Until that point, Mark looked at it strictly like a radio. You know, you have a radio show, you have a radio that you're pro you're programming, a radio station you're programming, mm -hmm. and you have a format, and that's that. You don't think much about it. So up till that point, I think Mark Goodman and all the VJs that work there and the management of MTV just looked at it like, well, we're formatting a rock station, and that's what we're doing. But when David Bowie talked about the importance, I think management at MTV sort of stepped back and thought, oh, wait, you know what? He's right. We weren't. We were looking at it as a business. We weren't looking at it as a cultural movement. So that's when they shifted gears and said, let's just focus on what's good, not focus on a genre. Yeah, thank God for artists like Whitney Houston and Prince for coming along as well to help. And if you think about it, even still to this day, I mean, artists like Whitney Houston and Prince and even Michael Jackson, um, for the sake of, you know, grants, you know, generalizing uh, the whole topic, mm -hmm. they were safe artists to reach middle white America mm -hmm. because they didn't have, they didn't threaten anything. And I think that was why MTV mm -hmm. sort of said, let's put our foot in the water with these artists first. Mm -hmm. But then the success of Yo MTV raps was off the charts to the point that they realized, wait, you know what? This is all about the music. It's not about anything. Let's not worry about who we turn mm -hmm. off. Let's worry more about who we turn on to good music. And then that's when all of a sudden the floodgates opened and they just started playing a lot more diversity. Yeah, just kind of recapping that for some of the younger audience, just just trying to get them to understand that things didn't start off the way that it is now for MTV as, you know, as a 90s baby. You know, I grew up 
when rock was taking almost a back seat, you know, it was like in that era where, you know, hip hop and pop and R and B were starting to, you know, really hit the mainstream. So a lot of people don't even know that history unless they're like us who are deeply ingrained in the music industry. So I wanted to go back and travel back to the first. So I, I, I don't know if I asked you this, but the first, the very first video that you remember watching in your first reaction. I think the very first video that stuck with me was Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Mm. And it was mostly because of the video production. It was an incredible stop-motion video, which um, was a unique art at that time. And I think the only stop-motion animation that was popular back at that same era was the California Raisins selling commercials on television. (laughs) But most people had no idea what stop-motion was. And here was a video of an artist performing completely in stop motion. So I think Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel was one that jumped out at me. Um, Rocket by Herbie Hancock was another one that jumped out at me, which I think is a powerful song. And Mm -hmm. it was a great video done completely with uh, electronics and robots. And um, again, these were all artists that were not known to be visual artists because they were around pre-MTV, but they understood the medium and they decided to take their music and find a way to make it visually appealing. Mm -hmm. Because so many of the early artists on MTV, they were musicians. They had no idea how to translate what they were doing to music. So quite often the video was nothing more than the band playing live or a band performing behind a green screen or or weird slow-mo effects because that's all they had. They also (laughs) knew how to use. So it took an artist to sort of stop and say, let me, how do I tell my story visually? Just like Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as Billie Jean was monumental for it being a video, it's not a great video. You know, it's it's cute and it's it's memorable because of the sidewalk lighting up and things like that. But it, what's really a great video is when he started to say, I really want to tell a story. And the thriller, of course, was a huge story in, that he told with music. And I think that's that's when videos really went to the next level because of Michael Jackson and thriller. I think artists realized, wait, I can direct a movie that is based upon the song I wrote. And it took videos to a whole different level. And then I think there was a period of time in the 90s when all of a sudden, especially with hip-hop rap, it became cars and girls and crowds. So all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, every video had the same texture. It's just like a bunch of people outside around a nice car with girls. and, And there was no real direction to it. And then after a while, same deal. Um, hip-hop rap artists started to actually tell mu- tell songs. I think Missy Elliott is a perfect example of somebody yes. who used medium to uh, properly and to really put a visual to a lot of the music she does because uh, if you look at early Missy Elliott videos, she went out of her way to really you know get involved in producing great videos that stood up. So every, every moment had its moment where there was really kind of empty videos, but then all of a sudden it developed again. For me, Sledgehammer's always been one that I always tell people Go back on YouTube and Google Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel, and you'll see what I mean by and And also remember that it happened in 1985. I mean, it's, you know, not now. That's right. Yeah, I wanted to recap that because I was talking about earlier, the very first video that I seen was actually, I think I was only like four years old. Um, <laughs> I was, for some reason, and somehow I got in charge of the remote. And I do vaguely remember this, but, and I remember kind of watching it again as I was getting older because it became... I mean, still to this day, my favorite music video of all time. It just always stuck with me. I saw Aha's Take On Me. That was the very, my introduction to MTV. And I just got drawn in. Imagine a four or five-year-old seeing a music video. Uh, you know, a kid that loves music. I already knew 
that I just loved music so much and all kinds of music. And I see this music video and it's a cartoon. <laughs> right. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I love this. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a safe video. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing bad in it. But AHA Take On Me was my introduction to MTV. And I'm sure that you remember when that video came out. Well, and I think the thing about that video, too, is that, like you said, um, even though the song lyrics and the video matched up and told the story, for many people, the production of the video is what people remember the most. The song, if the song was playing by itself, it might not ring a bell, but the video, you can, you can close your eyes and you can visualize the video because it stood out that much. And I think it stood out for exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. It was a cartoon. It was, you know, live live action video morphing into a cartoon, morphing back into live action video, telling a crazy story in the midst of it all. And for the time, that was really an unusual technique that many people hadn't used. So I think that I think that's what stood out for many people. I know when you read lists like on Billboard or Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. that video is always at the top of the list or near the top of the list as best videos of all time because it just was such a groundbreaking video. You know your music. <laughs> that's true. And <laughs> when you become part of the lexicon of pop culture, then you know you've done a good thing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, I absolutely love that video traveling back. And I watch it. I still watch it today, even. I just get blown away. I show my kids that video because that was for me my introduction to MTV. I wanted to highlight this too, as I know WXPN, the station that you work for. You guys, I don't know if you were part of this, but 100 greatest music videos of the MT era or MTV era. Were you able to, I'm, I don't know if you were involved in that, but did you get to check that list out? Yeah, we did. We actually, um, that was a curated list that we put together ourselves because we didn't want to go off a third party list or use right. somebody else's list. And we thought we didn't want to make it available. We didn't want our audience to have to pick and choose because it would have taken forever. So we just thought, you know what, we're going to come down and each one of us submitted a list of like 10 artists that jumped out or things like stood out for one reason, not so much the best, but just things that were important, milestone, if you will. And together we were able to put that hundred, um, you know, the list of a hundred all time greatest kind of thing. And it was more, it was definitely subjective, but it was fun because it gave us an opportunity to celebrate the music from 1981s to like 2000 plus. We went, we went as long as his videos going, wow. we kept going. And it was kind of it was a neat it was a neat way to celebrate music, but it was also a neat way to showcase the fact that while MTV no longer does music the way it used to, um, the concept of a music video is still strong. They're still out there. Obviously, YouTube has become the dominant factor when it comes to showcasing music videos these days. And you know, you'll see a YouTube video pop up, and the artist will get millions upon millions of plays, and that's what sells. So music videos still exist; they just don't have the, sho- the showcasing on cable the way they used to. Yeah, and the reason why we're, and I'm sure you know this, but for the listeners, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the big reason why we're highlighting this today, not only 40 years since MTV, but a lot of people don't realize this. You know, MTV, I'm talking more to the younger people, MTV changed entertainment and music industry forever when it started back in 1981. And I mean, forever. You know, record companies providing free content that it played nonstop, 24-7, entertainment, music, all day, all night long. And that's why we're highlighting it here today. And as you mentioned, I'm glad you nailed this and you kind of, you know, I guess move forward a little bit as MTV now is a whole lot different than the way we grew up on it. I mean, there's so many, I can't even keep up on the TV shows that's on there now. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and it's a different culture, which is fine. But I think the thing that a lot of people who weren't around when the MTV network launched 
need to appreciate is that what MTV did was not only give the industry an avenue to showcase the artist and to also make some money, but more importantly, what it did was it took music out of the radio and onto the television. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, musicians had to think about how they looked and they had to think about how they visually were going to tell the story that they were singing. And until that point, the only time you ever got to see a band was if you were going to concert and you saw them. And at that point, you didn't really care what they looked like because you were dancing and they were dancing and they're sweaty and whatever. Mm-hmm. But you never really had to worry about how they propelled themselves. And I think what MTV did was it came at a time in 1981, which coincidentally was just at a point where fashion was developing. The new wave of fashion was developing in 1981. So all of a sudden you had all these musicians who were already making fashion part of their act by default. Mm -hmm. So next thing you know, you have a network that comes out that's a visual network, which here you have music that's already visual to begin with, and the two things collided. And I think that what we take for granted now is when you have a musician put out a record, you expect a video, and you expect them to look glamorous, and you expect them to have a story, and you expect them to um, be on their, you know, full tilt, 100%, you know, out-of-the-box kind of showcase. But that was never the case until 1981. Uh, musicians would write great music and then stay in their house and you know do what they got to do. They didn't have to worry about showcasing their music on a day-to-day basis. So I think MTV really made music a more visual thing. And uh, until that point, it was just something you listened to and appreciated. But then after 81, especially by 84, it became something you had to watch as well as listen to. And I think that's something I always tell those who are too young to remember that's the importance of MTV was it made music something you watched, not just something you listened to. I'm really glad you touched on the fashion as well, going back to the eighties. Cause like, you know, me talking about I'm a nineties baby and I grew up, you know, as a teenager in the two thousands. So like my fashion was like soldier boy and bow wow. Like that's, right. you know, I got stuck with that stuff, but you got, I mean, you got Duran Duran, you got Tina Turner, you got Michael Jackson, so I want to know I mean, a little Madonna. bit more. Madonna was the ultimate Madonna the fashion. I mean, she she shaped a whole generation of you know, teenage girls in the '80s with her fashion sense. So I want to know: was there anyone that you tried to reenact with your fashion? I had MC Hammer pants. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> I'll be the yes. first to admit that I went out and bought a pair of uh, MC Hammer pants. I look ridiculous <laughs> in them, but I didn't care because everybody was rocking them in the clubs and all that stuff. So um, I. <laughs> I did not wear my pants backwards like uh, you know crisscross. Oh. I mean, yeah, by that point, I was over the fashion. I, ne- I needed stability. But in the <laughs> '80s, I definitely rocked um, some of the fashions. I had you know I, I definitely had a red leather jacket. Nice, like uh, Michael Jackson did. I mean, there were things that were, and that again, these when you think about the '80s and you ask people to rattle off you know what what they consider to be '80s fashion, every piece of fashion that you considered to be 80s off the top of your head, whether it's the arm full of bracelets, rubber bracelets, whether it's the, um, you know, all the outfits the girls are wearing, whether it's the MC Hammer pants, they all wind up connecting to a video. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they all come from videos. In the 70s, the fashion came from Paris and it came from New York and that's how it drove fashion and movies. But in the 80s, the videos are what drove fashion. And when you think about fashion in the 80s now, quite often, I bet whatever you're thinking about stems from some video or some musician, what they were wearing on a video. So that's another power that MTV had in the 80s was it really shaped a whole generation when it came to how they dressed and and what they bought. So for me, I think um, 
I, I played it close to the chest, but I, I'm comfortable admitting that I had MC Hammer pants. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's what I was trying to get down to the bottom to. I needed to get down to the nitty gritty. That's what I wanted to know. Because I they probably never they probably never disintegrated. I'm sure they're still around somewhere. Still got them somewhere. So if there's ever an somewhere, '80s party, so. you're ready to go. You already got your costume. <laughs> That's awesome. That's good stuff. And thank you so much. I mean, I could we could talk MTV for so long, and I had a blast, you know, traveling back with you today. Um, but I also wanted to get to know, you know, something else that you're also involved in as I want to give you the floor and try to highlight everything that you're involved in. So uh, tell me a little bit about Cuisine. Well, I do Cuisine, which is a radio show I do Sunday evenings yeah. here at WXPN, which reaches out to the LGBTQ community. We've been doing it since 1994. Wow. It's a public affairs programming that really touches on not only the news and information, but also really gets heavy to celebrate out music. There's a, there's a huge movement of international artists who are out, and they've been performing, and they, they're comfortable in their skin. It, it goes back to the, the 90s, um, but over the past few years, it's gotten to the point where you can't even keep track of how many out artists there are worldwide um, because it's just ballooned. And so I tried my best to showcase these artists around the world who are producing music and being comfortable while doing it. So that's the, that's the one show I do. And then then the, the other hat that I wear here at the radio station is um, something I'm, that's close to my heart, which is when I was a, a kid in the 12, 13 years old, I started collecting um, weird, offbeat holiday music, like albums I'd hmm. find in dollar bins and things like that, and things that weren't the typical you know, Johnny Mathis records, but weird Christmas stuff. I just started collecting as a kid, never knew what to do with it. And then back in 1993, the radio station needed somebody to be on the air Christmas Eve, and there was nobody available. And I said, I'll be on the air to help run the tapes, but as long as you let me come on for a couple hours and play some of my music, my collection. And they agreed to it. And so now I've been on the air every Christmas Eve for 24 hours, nonstop, live, playing all my different crazy music. I have some special programs and special guests, and I do the whole thing live every Christmas Eve from midnight to midnight on December 24th. So, yeah, I'm coming on. Um, in two years, in, in, in 2023, it'll be my 30th year doing Christmas Eve. And the cool thing is we have listeners all around the world through our website at xpn.org. So it's become much more of a global show, um, as you know, the power of online. So it really has um, made the show even stronger now because people who grew up in the Philly market, who no longer live in Philly, can still connect to Philadelphia thanks to the radio internet. So that Christmas Eve thing is definitely something else. And that's kind of why I wound up doing this 24-hour 80 show, because people here at the station already know I'm a freak when it comes to 24-hour radio shows. <laughs> they said, He'll do it. He already does one. He could do two. So that's where that came from. <laughs> I know how that works. Get yourself, and next thing you know, they're going to ask you for everything. You that's know right. That. Yep, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Don't never volunteer. Never, yeah. <laughs> ne- ne- never volunteer. Unless you're certain. <laughs> that's right. Unless you absolutely know you want to do it, don't volunteer. Don't, don't just... Yeah. Don't feel bad. So absolutely great stuff. Robert Drake joining us here. Of course, Philadelphia. Shout out Philly. Got a lot of friends out there as well. But I really appreciate you for coming on, talking MTV, getting to know you a whole lot more. I really appreciate it. Great stuff. And take care. Uh, you know, be safe. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. I always love chatting about the old school stuff. So thanks so much. Time Travel with DC Hendricks on the Music Vibes Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify on your mobile device. Podcasts by Federated Media.